Please turn in your Bibles tonight to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, I'll read verses 33 through 40, which is the section our sermon will be on tonight. Psalm 119 and verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe thy law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the way, in the path of thy commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to thy testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in thy ways. Establish thy word to thy servant as that which produces reverence for thee. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for thine ordinances are good. Behold, I long for thy precepts. Revive me through thy righteousness. Let's once again pray together. Father, thank you for your glorious word tonight. Bless it to us. Give us grace to be attentive to set our minds upon it, give us open hearts to receive all that you would have to say to us and bless our time this evening. And we look to you for this mercy and grace through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We ought to always have the highest views of the word of God. It is an inspired word God breathed. A word breathed out of his mouth, every word of scripture coming down from the throne of God, both Old and New Testaments. Peter said no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Men wrote the Bible, but men were moved under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they wrote, and when they were done writing, what they wrote was spoken from God. God. Sometimes we say that in the Bible, God said. Other times we read, the scripture said, and both are true. God speaks. God is the one who speaks in the Holy Scriptures. And he has preserved this book, the oldest book in the entire world. He has kept it, and in his powerful providence, he has preserved it through the centuries so that we here sit tonight with the very word of God before us And we should marvel and wonder at the great gift that he has so mercifully given to us. Sometimes we say that the Bible is inerrant and infallible word of God. By inerrant we mean that there is no error found anywhere in the scripture. And every word of it has been preserved just as it was originally spoken by God. By infallible we mean that it is completely trustworthy and reliable. It is able to guide us in all of our faith and practice. Every word of it is true. There is no deception. There is no lie found anywhere in it, and it will never fail in its purpose to bring all believers safely into their final salvation. Sometimes we say the Bible is sufficient. 
by which we mean the Bible contains everything that we need to know for the will of God and to be pleasing in his sight. We do not need any other teaching outside the Bible. And there is nothing which men can ever add to it. The Bible itself is sufficient to guide us safely to heaven. But these terms that we use, inspired or inerrant, infallible and sufficient, these are technical terms to describe the Bible. The Bible is really so much more to us. As the writers of the Bible often tell us, David tells us how precious the word of God is. It is more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. He says it is sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned in keeping them. There is great reward. He writes... The psalmist writes in another place in this psalm that the law of thy mouth is better to me than 10,000 pieces of gold and silver. I love thy commandments above gold, yes, above fine gold. Job says in Job 28 and verse 15 that pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it, nor silver weighed out as its price. And then the psalmist also tells us that the word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our pathway. Isaiah says to the law and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn, no light in them. And the same thing is true when we come to the New Testament. that The gospel is the power of God to salvation. The word of the cross is the power of God, the words of eternal life. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 4 and verse 1, that in the word, God has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And he says, you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. These men surely knew the true value of the word of God. They were inspired as they wrote it. And they tell us how we should view it. And they tell us what estimate that we should put down upon the word of God as it came down from heaven to them. And they wrote it. And they would tell us that there is nothing more valuable in all the world than the words that we have in this book. It is truth in a false world. It is light in the darkness It is like a deep mine full of every kind of jewel, most precious gems and diamonds. It is an armory full of every weapon that we need for the spiritual warfare of this life. There is comfort, there is joy and peace found in the scriptures. There is hope, there is strength, there is every good thing that our souls could ever need is found in the word of God. It is food for the hungry, it is drink for the thirsty. It is the bread of God coming down from heaven in this wilderness. Water in a dry and thirsty land. 
And the reason why all of this is ultimately true is because the word of God directs us to the Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the center of all the scriptures, everything, the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, the New Testament, all direct us and they're all fulfilled in Jesus. And surely if we have any right understanding, we would see the word of God as the most precious gift God could ever give to us in this present world. And no matter what other worldly thing he may give us, there is nothing more valuable to us than the scriptures. How eager we should be to read the Bible every day. And how desirous we should be to be in God's house whenever it is preached. We come to church two times on the Lord's Day here. And there are not many who do that anymore. But it ought to be the delight and the joy of our souls to hear God's word. And I bring this all up because in this Psalm 119, this is the main purpose of the psalmist throughout this entire psalm, to exalt the word of God and to teach us the worth and the glory and the good of the word of God. So it is good for us to consider a portion of it from time to time. And tonight we will look at verses 33 through 40. The psalmist begins here in verse 33. He says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes. We see in verse 33, he speaks of thy statutes. And then in verse 34, the middle of the verse, he speaks of thy law. Then in verse 35, thy commandments. Verse 36, thy testimonies. Verse 37, the end, thy ways. Verse 38, thy word. Verse 39, thine ordinances. And then in verse 40, thy precepts. And all of these terms, these different terms, they refer to the word of God. We notice that pronoun, thy, in front of each of these. Because all of these things, thy statutes, thy laws, thy commandments, they all come from God. They are all his. In verse 33, the psalmist earnestly cries to God for him to be his teacher. He says, teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes. Now this request he has made numerous times throughout the psalm in different verses, in different ways to teach us the great priority that it is to have the Lord himself to teach us his ways. The psalmist, some say he was David, others say that he was someone else, but he probably had prophets and priests and wise men who surrounded him, who were well able to teach him the word of God. And he himself was inspired in the word of God to write the word of God, so he knew the word of God well, very well himself. But despite all that men could teach him, there is no teacher like the Lord himself who gives powerful and effectual teaching, and so he calls upon the Lord to be his teacher. The word teach here means to come and point out the way of every word. O Lord, come and point out 
the meaning, and the way of every word to me. He does not ask for intellectual notions or head knowledge concerning God's statutes. We notice that he asks the Lord to teach him the way of thy statutes. Not just thy statutes, but the way of thy statutes, meaning the way of duty in accordance with thy statutes. How the word should be applied to my life, that I might know the way in which I should walk and be guided by them in everything that I do so that my life would be governed by thy statutes and conformed to it. We notice how personal the request is. He says, teach me. He does not say, teach others, but teach me. This is our great concern. This is what every one of us needs. Because we are always in different places and circumstances and stations in life. And the teaching that we need at one time is not the teaching that we need at another time. So we must always be crying to him, Lord, teach me in my life at this time, O Lord, the way of my duty according to your statutes. This is not a prayer for mere young converts or for only for inexperienced believers. For no matter how long we have been in the Christian life, we must always be continuing to make more progress in the word. So this is a prayer For every day of life, teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes. What a very great privilege we have here in this verse. For the Lord himself to be our teacher. He has not only given us the word. He has not only inspired the word in holy scriptures, but he is willing to come to each one of us individually and teach to us the word. He sent his beloved son from heaven, and one of the great purposes of Jesus coming into the world was to be a great teacher. No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who was in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And the Holy Spirit is our teacher. And so God the Father is so willing and desirous to teach us the word that he sent his beloved Son and he sends his Holy Spirit. Isaiah said in chapter 54 in verse 13, he said, all your sons will be taught of the Lord and the well-being of your sons will be great. Job said in chapter 36 and verse 22, Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? And in chapter 30, verse 21, Isaiah said, He said, The Lord will be your teacher. And then he said, Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. And that's what the psalmist is praying for here. Because when God becomes our teacher, that's what happens to us. We hear his voice speaking to us through the scriptures, saying, this is the way. Walk in it. If the Lord would be his teacher, 
Then the psalmist promises in the second half of the verse. He says, I shall observe it. I shall keep it to the end. He makes here a promise of his own perseverance, his commitment and his devotion to live by the word of God. I shall observe it, he says. I shall keep it. And how long shall I keep it? For a little while? No. To the end, he says, to the end. The end he speaks of here is death, the end of life. Life is a long pathway from our perspective. And there are many trials and dangers, difficulties that we cannot anticipate. But no matter what comes upon us, we must be committed to keeping God's ways to the very end. In Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Christian left the the city of destruction. He set off on the narrow way to the celestial city. He did not know what lie ahead of him, the darkness, the difficulties, the troubles that he would encounter, but he knew the way, and the way was according to God's word. This is the surest proof of one's sincerity when he keeps God's word to the very end. Men can often speak of their loyalty. They can appear to keep his ways for a little while. But then they fall away like that seed that is sown on the rocky soil. And it springs up quickly. It seems to have fruit for a time. But then trials and afflictions come and they fall away because there is no depth of soil in their hearts. Only the true believer has the good soil in his soul to persevere in the word of God faithfully to the end. The words there at the end of verse 33, to the end, very important words, because they put a proper perspective on our life with God that we must always have the end, the end of life in view. When death comes, and then we must give an account for what we have done and how we have conducted ourselves in God's world. Sin, sin always has short-term pleasures in view. Sin always comes with immediate satisfaction and then it leaves us with its guilt and its judgment. But the keeping of God's commandments always has the long term in view to the end. To the end points us to what must be the priority And the goal of all life here in this world, not to please ourselves, but to please the great God in heaven and to be prepared. This life is meant to prepare us for the day of judgment that is to come. I do not speak of a work salvation here. And I do not deny any of the grace of God. I speak of what the grace of God produces in the life of a Christian. And the apostles Peter spoke the same way. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17, he said, If you address as Father 
the one who impartially judges according to each man's work. He said, conduct yourselves in fear during this time of your stay upon earth. Conduct yourselves in fear to the end in the keeping of God's ways. So we must not just begin the Christian life well, we must end it well and arrive safely in the celestial city. This is the only way is to observe his commandments, his statutes to the end. Peter said this in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. He said, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing his election of you. How do you know that you have been called of God and elected in eternity? Be all the more diligent, Peter said. For as long as you practice these things, he says, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you to the end is what Peter is speaking of. The promise here in the second half of verse 33 is not made out of human strength. It is dependent on the grace of God in the first half of the verse. So we should understand the verse in this way. Verse 33, teach me thy way. Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, for I am daily, continually dependent on the divine teaching of your Holy Spirit. And if you teach me in this way, then I will have the grace of perseverance in your ways, and I will be enabled to observe them to the end. So the perseverance that David promised, or the psalmist promises, in the second half of the verse, is dependent upon the grace of God's teaching power in the first half of the verse. We find some similar thoughts in verse 34, but different. He says, give me understanding that I may observe thy law and keep it with all my heart. Here the psalmist, he prays for spiritual understanding. In the word of God, what we often call wisdom, which is more than just the teaching that he asked for in verse 33. There is a difference between teaching and understanding. Anyone who's been a teacher knows that there may be teaching. There may be teaching and there is good teaching. But is there understanding in the pupils who receive the teaching? That's what's going on. That's the difference here. In verse 33, he is asking for the Lord to teach him. But in verse 34, he is asking for the Lord to give him a proper understanding. Give me spiritual light, he means, into the true meaning. It is one thing to be taught God's word. It is something else to know it properly, wisely in the decisions of life. This is the kind of wisdom that can only come from the Lord. This is what he prays for. We read in James chapter 1 and verse 5 that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach and it shall be given to him. That's the wisdom, the understanding that the psalmist is praying for here. Give me this illumination that I may observe thy law in every part of my life and be pleasing in your sight. 
At the end of verse 34, he says that I may keep it with all my heart. This shows us where true religion always begins. It begins from the heart, with all my heart, it says. Not a partial heart or a divided heart, not a heart where we say, well, we will let the Lord have these portions of the heart, but then here, this is my portion, and I keep it for myself and for my own things. No, this is true religion. All the heart, the whole heart, is given to the ways of God. We all make many decisions in life. Sometimes we make small decisions which perhaps do not have a great consequence. Other times we make big decisions which change the whole course of our life. But behind all of our decisions are the principles of our lives and our hearts that guide us in all of our decisions. And sometimes, perhaps too often, our principles are not what they ought to be because they seem to rise no higher than to ask the question, which way is most pleasing and most desirable to me? And which way seems most advantageous, advantageous to me? And then we base our decisions upon our own desires and our own pleasures, and we fail to take our decisions before the word of God and ask ourselves, am I truly being guided by the word of God in this matter? The psalmist here knew that the decisions of his life could not be based upon his own pleasures, but upon what is most pleasing to the Lord. He is praying, give me this understanding, guide my thinking and my actions, that I might observe thy law and keep it with all my heart. We come to verse 35. He says, make me walk in the path of thy commandments, for I delight in it. There is a progression here in these verses. Back in verse 33, David prays for divine teaching. Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes. In verse 34, he asks for true understanding and wisdom and the practical use of God's word. He says, give me understanding that I may observe thy law. Now here in the beginning of verse 35, he Ask for divine strength and enablement to walk in God's ways. He says, make me, make me to walk in the path of thy commandments. Not force me or coerce me, but make me willing. So work in me by your Holy Spirit to give me the will and the strength and the desire to walk in your ways. He is praying here for what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, the psalmist here, he is recognizing that everything within him by nature is contrary to God's ways. And even as a believer, left to himself, 
His heart is still averse to God's commandments. All power must come from above by the Holy Spirit to walk in God's ways. And so we must cry to him for this grace to make us willing. Make me willing, able to walk in the path of your commandments. This is what God said through Ezekiel in chapter 6 of the new covenant. He said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. He said, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes to enable you, to empower you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to keep my ordinances. And that's what the psalmist desires here, that God would so work in him by the Holy Spirit to cause him to walk in God's statutes and be careful to keep his ordinances. So what we have here is an Old Testament, an Old Covenant saint praying a New Covenant prayer. The word make me walk is a strong word. It makes means make me march in the path of thy commandments. Lord, he is saying, even though my heart is not inclined to your commandments, which is what we find too often, he says, work in me and by your grace overcome my will and by your Holy Spirit renew my will and make me willing to walk in your ways. So sometimes we are taught the right way from verse 33 and we understand the right way from verse 34 but we still have no desire and no power within us to walk in those right ways. And so then we must pray, verse 35, Lord, you have taught me, you have given me understanding, but I have no strength within me. Make me to walk in the path of thy commandments. And then he closes the verse, he says, for I delight in it. He remembers whenever he has walked in God's ways, the freedom, the joy, the peace, the delight that he had in God's ways because God's ways are never burdensome. God's ways are never grievous to us. And Paul said, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. And John said, this is love that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. God's commandments are never burdensome. They are always the delight of a soul that has been renewed by the grace of God. Make me walk in thy commandments, for I delight in it. And then in verse 36, he says, Incline my heart to thy testimonies and not to dishonest gain. The words dishonest gain here are sometimes translated covetousness. They refer to material gain, things of the world. Some Bibles translated, incline my heart to thy testimonies and not to covetousness. So this is a prayer against the particular temptation of covetousness and the desire for more and more things of the world. Riches in themselves are not evil. And one may be rich 
by God's blessing upon him without any violation of God's commandments. And there are rich men and women in the Bible who walked with God. But when one gains riches in violation of God's commandments in some way, then it becomes what is called here dishonest gain or covetousness. This is a situation that the psalmist envisions here. That he is being tempted by material gain, which he can only get by some violation of God's commandments. Some transgression of the scriptures. The two things are in conflict with one another here. On the one hand, there is God's testimonies, which he knows are right. On the other hand, is the material gain, which he knows he can only get by violating God's word. And the two things are battling in his soul, and he feels intensely the pull and the attraction of the worldly things. He cannot have both. He cannot keep God's commandments as he should and have the material gain at the same time. He cannot have both. He must choose between one or the other. And without divine help, he knows, he knows, my heart is inclined to the material gain. We live in a materialistic society. For the people of the world all around us, the goal of their life, they have one great goal. To get more money and to get more things for themselves. And Christians feel the pressure of conforming to the ways of the world and getting all those things for themselves as well. And so Christians fall into this sin of violating the principles of God's word in some way to gain more of the things of the world. This is why the Apostle Paul has to warn us in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 9. He says, but those who want to get rich, they fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and riches at the same time. John put it this way. That the love of God and the love of the world cannot exist in the same heart at the same time. First John chapter 2 verse 15. He said if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All that is in the world, the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away, and also its lusts. Matthew Henry writes on this verse, he said, Those, therefore, who would have the love of God rooted in them must get the root, the love of the world rooted out of them. For friendship with the world is enmity with God. So the verse here, it speaks of covetousness, the particular sin of covetousness, but we could also imagine here any other kind of sin. The question is, what do we do when we face the intense pull of sin? When the battle rages 
within. How can we get deliverance in the great struggle against our own sins? When the battle is raging, the help will not come from ourselves. It will only come by the power of God working in us. And that's what the psalmist recognizes here in verse 36. Incline my heart to thy testimonies and do not let my heart be inclined to dishonest gain. So here, when our hearts are pulled towards some sin, we must go to God and incline and ask him to incline our hearts in the right direction toward his commandments and away from our sins. We believe that God is sovereign over all things, and he is even sovereign over the hearts of all men. We read in Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 1 that the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wishes. And if God can control the hearts of pagan kings upon their thrones, then he can surely incline our hearts in regard to our sanctification and turn us away from our sin. This is what we must pray. Lord Jesus, here is my sin. Incline my heart to your word and not to my sins. And he is able and he is willing to answer such a prayer as that. Verse 37. He says, turn my eyes away from looking at vanity and revive me in thy ways. Here again, we have two things in conflict with one another. On the one hand, we have vanity, the vanities of the world. On the other hand, we have God's ways. Vanity here may not be things which are necessarily sinful. But they are things that are of no moral or spiritual profit. They are useless to our spiritual progress. And they are things which distract us from the duties of the Christian life. They are things that lead us astray from the true priorities of God's word. They are things that are unnecessary. They are things that are wastes of time and wastes of energy and perhaps even wastes of money. How much time we spend watching television kind of television we watch, the movies that we listen to. It could be a thousand things, the internet, the social media, and all of these things this day. Could be a thousand things. When it comes to vanities, here is the question we ask ourselves. Do I really need to have this thing, whatever it may be? What spiritual good is this thing doing to my soul? And will this thing help me as I seek to walk in God's ways to the very end of life and stand before him on the last day? Will these things help me? That's the question that you need to ask when it comes to the vanities. Many times our choices are not between good and evil. 
our choices are really between good and better and best. Matthew Henry writes on these vanities that they are the honors, the pleasures, the profits of the world which draw multitudes away from the paths of religion and godliness. Draw multitudes away is what Matthew Henry says. We notice how these temptations, they enter, they enter through the eyes. He says, turn my eyes away. This is the gate by which they enter and then they get into the eyes the lusts of the eyes, the lusts of the flesh, they enter in at the eyes and then they come down and they grab hold of the heart and they lead the soul astray from its allegiance to God. Vanities deaden our souls. Vanities make us more worldly. Vanities divert us from what is best in our spiritual life. A traveler headed, heading to another city. If a traveler heading to another city is constantly drawn aside by every attractive thing which presents itself to his eyes, then how will he make any progress on the way? And we are travelers to a heavenly city. And if our eyes are constantly looking at the vanities of this present world, how can we make true progress along the way? Turn away my eyes from vanity. Now it is our duty to turn away our eyes. But the psalmist knew that he couldn't do it without God's help. So even here, this is a prayer, turn my eyes. He is asking God to do it. Lord, I try, I do the best by your grace, but come and help me to do this. And then the only real solution is to revive me in thy ways, to breathe the Holy Spirit afresh upon me, to give me new life, new strength, new vigor, new love of the truth, new grace of holiness in my soul that I might overcome my temptations. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity. Revive me. Give me new life. In thy ways. So, what the psalmist is really praying for in this section is for his own growth and progress in the spiritual life. Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And this man here, he is dead set on pursuing holiness to the very end of his life. This is what it's all about. And he is saying throughout this section, whatever would hinder me in my progress, whatever would stand in my way, and whatever would hold me back from spiritual progress in my life and from pursuing the sanctification that I need, Lord, come and incline my heart away from those things and turn my eyes from them and give me the strength to walk in your ways. Sometimes Christians wonder, how do I make progress in the Christian life? The answer is right here, by praying this prayer that the psalmist prays. It would be something, perhaps, that would be very good for us to do, each one of us, to go home this week and take this prayer and pray through the words of this section 
for each one of us in our own private devotions. Lord, teach me your statutes. Give me understanding. Make me to walk in the path of them with all my heart. Search me, know me. Find out if there is any evil way. Turn my heart toward your testimonies and away from vanity. And revive me in your ways. This is a divinely inspired prayer. What prayer could be better? And what prayer could be more answered by the Lord than a divinely inspired prayer as we read right here? In verse 38, he says, Establish thy word to thy servant as that which produces reverence for me. The word of God exalts and glorifies God that we might have the highest thoughts of him and live in reverence and fear of him. That's what the word works in us, reverence for God. Verse 39, he says, Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for thy ordinances are good. The psalmist here, he knew that when he walks in the ways of God's ordinances as he desired, it would bring possible reproach upon him. He did not desire reproach to fall upon him. No man does. And so he asked that if it is possible that the Lord would remove this reproach from him, reproach that is being brought upon him for walking in God's ways, But even if that reproach comes upon him for walking in God's commandments, he says, thine ordinances are still very good. Verse 40, he says, Behold, I long for thy precepts. Revive me through thy righteousness. He not only delighted in God's ways and loved the word, but he longed for the word and the precepts to come to him. So here is a saint pressing forward to maturity in his spiritual life. And once one tastes even a little of the goodness and the sweetness of the Lord and the word of the Lord, it sets him longing and panting after even more. We might think after all the psalmist has said in this section of scripture, we might think he has had enough and he needs no more. But no, he desires even more. He says, I long, I long for thy precepts, even more of your word. After you have taught me, after you have given me understanding and I walk in your commandments, I still long for even more to know more of your precepts. And that's a prayer that God is always willing and able to satisfy and answer. I long for thy precepts. Revive me according through thy righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let's pray together. Father and gracious God in heaven, we do bow before you tonight and all that we can do is give you thanksgiving and praise for your most precious and holy word. O Lord, there is nothing in all the earth that can compare to it. 
It is more valuable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. It is sweeter than the honeycomb. It is a lamp upon our feet, a light to our pathway, and we need to walk in the ways of it. Have great mercy upon us where we have turned aside and our hearts have been inclined to ways that are not good. Help us and guide us into your truth that we might be more pleasing to you. Lord, forgive us of so many sins. Make holiness to be the most desirable thing in our life that we might keep your precepts to the very end that we might be ready to stand before you on that great day when you return in all your glory and majesty and power. O Lord, help us to keep these things in view and bless your word to us to that end. We thank you now. We ask that you would hear us. In Jesus' name, amen.